welcome, welcome, welcome to this delayed but latest edition of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I am your Sherpa, your guide, Chris Hall. Been a long time since I wrapped at you, amigos, but uh, we were a little short-staffed and had some other things going, so uh, this got put on the back burner, but we're back with a full vengeance. Uh, lots of stuff going on. Uh, hope you got your deer tags. If you didn't, hope you got them in the second draw. If not, that third draw is coming up and there's still some good tags left over. I was just looking at that. Um, if you are hoping to maybe do some extra hunting this fall, don't forget the South Dakota Hunt for Habitat. Raffle tickets, 10 bucks for a ticket for residents, 20 bucks for non-residents. Uh, giving away three packages that include a elk tag, an any deer tag, and an antelope tag. Good for whatever season, whatever unit. Um, those are cool, and they're also good for either 2019 or th 2020. Also giving away one package to go hunt a big boy of Custer State Park, a trophy Custer State Park bison or buffalo if you're from these parts. So that's cool stuff. Go to our website, type in Hunt for Habitats, and buy those raffle tickets. Those are unlimited. And all the proceeds will go to Habitat Work on public and private ground in South Dakota. So that's some cool stuff. Uh, a couple other things um, to be thinking about. This is the time of year, getting a few reports in from social media and a few calls that I talked to about blue-green algae. Um, blue-green algae is kind of a thick mat of algae. It's blue or green. Sometimes it's brown. Um, sometimes it's even a rusty red. Uh, kind of happens in stagnant waters when it gets really hot. Stagnant waters. I know when I was up in northeast South Dakota, I saw a few smaller lakes and sloughs that had uh, pretty good mats of blue-green algae in there. Uh, what you need to know about that is, heads up, it's super, super uh, poisonous to dogs. It's actually poisonous to people, too, but uh, bad for dogs. Um, I heard some reports of some dogs dying in the Madison area. And uh, actually, up around Aberdeen, I got a call that uh, somebody had lost a pet, too. So... If you're uh, swimming your dogs, make sure to look around and look for those mats of that algae. Um, it's no bueno, not good stuff. Um, but on a lighter note, got antelope draws coming up, so get, a, get your tags in or get your applications in for antelope. Um, and really, I've heard some really good reports about fishing too. Um, you know, uh, Lake Oahe has been producing some big fish, even now on the lower end. So that's good and, and good numbers of fish. Uh, even some of the small dams and stuff, I was <clears throat> kicking around out on the grasslands, Fort Pier National Grasslands, uh, last night, as a matter of fact. And uh, most of those ponds aren't very weedy, and there's uh, panfish and bass. And I even went back to my old northeast South Dakota roots and caught a few bullheads. Uh, reminded me of the days when I was a kid fishing in Jim Creek on the Travers. So get out there, still good time to fish. Uh, the other big thing, um, got some news last week or late the week before. They did find zebra mussels in Lake Sharp. So Pier area folks, uh, that's been on their minds quite a bit. And Chamberlain area folks, because Francis Case, uh, although they haven't found any mussels there, um, it's uh it's definitely they're definitely there or certainly there because it runs downhill and on that note uh, i will take you to a couple of mics mike smith and mike griner to talk about zebra mussels and what our game fish parks commission did and uh what how it's going to affect anglers boaters and uh, what people need to know and from there i'm going to talk about uh, CWD, chronic wasting disease, with Chad Switzer. Uh, he's kind of the guy that does all the CWD stuff and game management stuff. And uh, we'll wrap it up there. I got a two, couple of two really good uh, discussions with those guys. Hope you're having fun. Hope you have a great summer. Hope your equipment is tuned up for the fall. And uh, until I see you next time, have a good one. Without saying hi to me How can time flying just pass by Without saying bye to me yeah.
I am your host, Chris Hull, your guide, your Sherpa, whatever. Uh, here with a couple of finely clad gentlemen who just came off of Lake Sharp. Uh, they're in smelly shoes and just got out of their diving gear, taking a look at the status of Lake Sharp and Lake Francis Case with uh, Mike Smith, who's Mike, what's your title now? So I'm the Upper Missouri River Fisheries Supervisor. So Wahi Sharp in like 12 counties either side of the river. And I'm here with Mike Greiner, and Mike Greiner is our AIS coordinator, which is Aquatic Invasive Species. And Mike Smith was our former, former AIS guy. So talking about zebra mussels, um, the discovery of zebra mussels in Lake Sharp, just uh, go ahead, Griner. Talk about uh, when we got the news, how that was found, how they were found. Just briefly talk about the discovery, I guess, if you will. Sure. So last week, um, the Army Corps of Engineers was doing some maintenance at um, Big Bend Dam and found some uh, what they thought were zebra mussels in their powerhouse and brought it over to our Chamberlain office where our uh, biologist Chris Long Henry confirmed that and so um, he relayed that info to me and so we scrambled to, to get crews out the, the very next morning um, led by Mike and some of our other trained divers um, they got a tour of Big Bend and uh, were shown several um, zebra mussels within the within the dam there and then spent the day diving and were able to confirm um, several different locations along the dam face there uh, where they're present. So you either have the best or the worst timing in the world because <laughs> you were finally going on a family vacation and did you just throw your phone out the window and go, I'll get another one? Or <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I think, I'm not sure if that's the best or worst timing. but So found zebra mussels. Um, then the next day, Mike Smith, you went with a crew and, and dove Talk about, you know, that experience, diving and looking and... and yeah, so we have uh, five staff that are, or six staff now, that are trained scuba divers. Um, typically what we've been doing is just, you know, standard fish survey stuff, but we do these rapid responses when we might have some mussels. And so what we really do, um, and how, I guess how we did it this time, uh, we went to the likely areas, so uh, the emergency spillway where a lot of water flows through, and then we had three divers in the water, myself, uh, Chris Long, Henry, and Mark Finsel, and then one of us stayed from surface to 10 feet, one stayed 10 to 20 feet, and one 20 to 30, and then we just went right along that cement wing wall. Um, pretty good water clarity, actually. I think we could see probably a foot or two in there, and just kind of ran our fingers along the cracks and stuff, and within a matter of, you know, five minutes, we had a dozen mussels that we'd found already, so it was pretty successful, I guess, search for them, if right. you want to call it successful, but yeah, it's it's a definitely an effective way to find them. Sure. Um, Griner, um, I know they found, you know, several different year classes. Is that what we're looking? Is that the term? Year so classes? Several sizes. Sizes. And so, so they've been there for a certain amount of time. Um, and you probably can't ask them their age or look for a birthday cake or anything. <laughs> um, so you're, you're in that area, fairly high flowing, flowing into Francis Case. So then you, I would take it, you went down, you guys went down to Francis Case and, and looked? Correct. And and didn't find anything down there, correct? Correct. But talk about how a zebra mussel, I know this is really fascinating science, and it actually is, and we'll try not to keep it too sciencey. but talk about a zebra mussel and reproduction. Sure. So one of the unique things about zebra mussels and, and why they're so easily spread around is that... Uh, they uh, broadcast spawn into the water column and then they're free floating for uh, up to a month at a time after they've been fertilized. So um, any source of water can transport them and they're really, really small. They're smaller than the width of a human hair. You cannot see them in water. So any raw water source from a lake, river, or stream could potentially transport them to a new place. Um, with that, you know, boats taking on water for their live well or, or a ballast tank in a, a ski boat, you know, you, you could be in an area with them, head up river and transport them that way when the water drains out of that live well and whatnot. But also um, being free floating, getting spread by the wind and wave action, anything downstream is eventually going to be uh, populated by them. Sure. So even though we haven't found them, I mean, 
they were there and yeah exactly case. it's just like what we saw below lewis and clark where we you know we found them about the dam first but it's only a matter of time before they're found in lake yankton or even mccook lake it's just they spread downstream with the water there's yeah. nothing you can do about that it rolls downhill right <laughs> exactly <laughs> Um, so what? how big is a, an adult zebra mussel? I mean, just for folks who maybe don't know. Uh, about uh, four or five centimeters. So fingernail or a little fingernail or something. And villagers, how, you know, how many in a year can one zebra mussel, I mean, tens up, of thousands, a million? Up to a million. Yikes. <laughs> okay. And no, no known predators, really. Yeah, there's some fish that will eat them, but they're just not a great diet items so if other things are out there the fish aren't necessarily going to to choose to eat the zebra mussels they're going to eat snails or they're going to eat other mollusks out there that are more nutritious for them and they came from europe and ballast tanks and boats right yeah black and caspian sea area so kind of uh, like some eastern europe okay um talk about where you found them and what you're doing to monitor now so you found them on the lower end of Sharp. Have you come up and looked upper end of Sharp towards, you know, coming towards Pier or anything? Or We have. So um, we actually had uh, um, some help um, with our rapid response from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where uh, we have passive samplers set out at docks uh, where they will attach to, and mm-hmm. it's um, just a quick and easy and cheap way for us to monitor our waters. So... They went out and checked those and then checked up and downstream, looking under rocks and, and things like that. And um, unfortunately, a lot of them were missing, either from the high water sure. or whatnot, <laughs> yeah. but uh, they, they didn't find any adults. Um, and then the last two days, we've been out um, doing villager sampling, where we take a, uh, a, a volume of water um, through the water column all throughout the lake. And we'll be sending those off tomorrow morning to be analyzed, and then hopefully we'll be able to determine kind of the extent of the the population in Sharp. Sure. Are lakes, are there certain lakes or certain bottoms of lakes or kind of lakes where they're more susceptible to move quicker? I mean, if you have a rocky, like a really rocky lake, say a Canadian Shield Lake, not, not that they're up there or whatever, compared to maybe more of a silty, you know, like maybe even Lake Sharp. Will they spread quicker in one place or the other? Or Yeah, when you're talking about zebra mussels, they typically would attach to a hard surface, um, shaded area, and then really anything like a right angle or a sharp angle is where they really like to go. You know, their cousin, the quagga mussel, that one sometimes will attach to softer substrate, but usually hard surfaces are where you're going to find them the most often, and that's where they're going to spread the quickest, is around rocks. And both can actually attach to vegetation, so yeah. if there's oh, not really? a lot of uh, rocky substrate available, um, so that's another reason why, you know, we want our boaters to, to clean their boats every time they leave the water because, uh, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, a full-grown adult is still pretty small, but the, the juveniles and the, the young adults are really hard to see. So any, you know, vegetation or mud in your boat hanging from the trailer could, you know, spread, spread them to a new lake. Sure. And I know when we, we shot that, uh, the video, just the quick boat cleaning video, you were rubbing your hands alongside a boat grinder and you were like, oh, those could be zebra mussels. And I'm looking at it, I was like, that's sand. And then you were kind of like, nah, I'm pretty sure those, you know, those are because the boat had come from down south and been out of the water for a year. But it, I mean, it, it blew me away that, no, those are probably zebra mussels. I mean, it was a grain of sand. Um, so that's, that's kind of scary. Um, what about... So we had the commission meeting. We had a had an emergency GFP commission meeting this week um, on the 24th. Um, talk briefly about what was actually done there. Uh, so, so basically, um, that that was an emergency meeting to designate those waters as containment waters. So, um, our AIS rules and regulations um, work together as a package. So. Um, by designating those waters as infested, any boat that um, cannot be completely drained, any boat that would be moored for three or more days consecutively, those are our high-risk boats. Um, there's a, a high risk of transporting villagers in that water that can't be drained, and then there's a high risk for a moored boat to have juveniles or uh, adults attached. Um, so with that designation, then we have watercraft inspection and decontamination crews out statewide and um, 
when they would encounter a boat trying to launch somewhere. Um, it's basically a risk assessment. Most interviews take a minute or two. If you're clean, drained, dried, um, you go right through, no big deal. But uh, coming from a containment water, if you've been moored for three days, if you have a ballast tank or something that can't drain water, then uh, we would perform a decontamination on that boat to try to minimize the risk of spreading into new waters. Sure. You know, and we think of moored, you're thinking of like maybe in a slip at, at Downs Marina or down at American Creek or something. But it, that's even, you know, if you're at West Bend and you put your boat in on a Thursday and you had it up on the beach or, you know, I've seen guys have their boats tied up along the docks or inside that little wake or, you know, the marina there. I mean, that would apply to them, too. They would have to go through a decontamination, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and like Mike said, it's it's a part of the risk assessment. If, if you're in that water for three days and your boat hasn't moved and there's, if there were mussels around and it's spawning season, it, there's a high likelihood that there could be something in that water or on the boat itself, so. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, I think I think our, our anglers are pretty well aware of what a zebra mussel does and, and but I, I just think the common person still doesn't, you know, why are these a bad thing? What do they do and why why are they bad? I think probably the one that, you know, everybody in South Dakota or across the country can, can understand and feel is that with, with these things attaching to hard surfaces, that includes things like water intakes for a city. And with Pier now moving to a, a raw water or a water intake on the river, it's likely going to affect that. And when that has to be cleaned off or there's, a, you know, a lot more maintenance for it, that goes directly into a, your increases to your water bills right there. So everybody everybody needs water, everybody pays for water, and that's just gonna make for higher bills. Right. And, you know, not only the, the cost to our, our water infrastructure, um, you know, kind of the, the impacts on fisheries have ranged widely. Um, it's just really on a case-by-case basis. There's so many um, kind of overlapping things environmentally that, you know, you, you can't pinpoint zebra mussels as a culprit for a fish crash. However, um, recreation is really impacted in a couple ways. Um, you know, zebra mussels have really sharp shells, and when they die off, they'll, they'll get washed up on beaches and shorelines, and, uh, you know, people can cut their feet. And, I mean, they can absolutely cover a shoreline where, you know, every single square inch is covered in them. So, um, you know, you, you lose those impacts there, but with the uh, increased water clarity from all the the filtering they do um, they can filter up to a liter of water per day per muscle so with that increased light penetration with the water clarity um, while some people might think that's nice in their lake um, that can lead to increases in toxic blue-green algae blooms Um, western basin of lake erie at times you can see from outer space i think you can this year yeah um it, it fouls the taste and the smell of drinking water and then, um, I would think just clear water makes can make for tougher fishing. I mean, you know, like you think of like places yeah. like Lake Havasu has them really bad too, and that is an outstanding bass fishery. But I know guys that used to go down there all the time, and now they don't go because the fish are so hard to catch. They're there, but they're hard to catch. Yeah, someone who's a poor fisherman like me, you need all the help you can get. Right. You don't have the perfect presentation. You might have some tougher fishing. Right. Yeah, I was. What I was. Uh, what was eluding me was that. Uh, um, in addition to the algae, um, some of our invasive plants here, um, you can see uh, huge increases in, like, say, curly pondweed sure. or, or milfoil, which also make boating difficult, make fishing difficult. And then, uh, you know, your bite window for, you know, everyone loves walleye in South Dakota. You, you may be doing a lot of night fishing. Right. Fishing a lot deeper and fishing at night. Yeah. So for somebody like me who has a old deck boat, um, you know, moored in, in Oahe downstream here in Pier, and that I think I paid more for the slip than we paid for the boat, but we get a lot of fun out of it. Um, at the end of the year, I'm going to have to decon the boat or make arrangements or something. How how does somebody correctly decontaminate a boat like me if I've had it moored for all season? So, uh, unfortunately, right now we don't have the infrastructure in place uh, to provide. Um, uh, proper decontamination, which would require 140 degree water to kill anything. So um, zebra mussels are, are very light sensitive. Mike talked about that they're, you know, look for shaded areas, um, right angles. Along with that, they're going to look for any nook and cranny. So they can really wedge themselves in to, to hard to reach spots on boats. Um, so when you 
say go to a, a car wash you might be able to power wash stuff off but there's going to be a lot of spa spaces where they're attached that you know you're not able to reach so you need 140 degree water to, to kill them um, so in the absence of that uh, talking about at the end of the year what you can do is to to clean your boat uh, dry everything out and over winter time um, those cold temperatures will freeze and desiccate any muscles that would be attached and then you know clean your boat again in springtime to remove anything that died over winter before you launch again sure and i know you know i was just thinking this just came to me it, it being around dogs and dog kennels and in you know hunting places that have big dog kennels guys have those kind of kerosene or diesel powered heated power washers i i know that gets to 150 degrees because i see it i mean so those are available i mean and more people have them than a guy thinks if you really if you were going to pull that boat out after it's being more now i want to take one last trip you know that's probably it uh an option to look around and there's there's certainly a lot of business opportunities there um, right. it only takes about 10 seconds of contact time to with that 140 degree water um, for the interior of boats uh, to protect your you know rubber gaskets plastic parts um, you can use 120 degree water but uh, you need to have about 90 seconds contact time minimum so um, yeah they're there's definitely uh, some good business opportunities there for anyone that uh, has hot water pre pressure washer. Right, and even like a, a in your bilge, you know, should you be running that water in the, in the interior compartment and measuring that water when it comes out, 140 degrees, and running it out for X number of seconds? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's impressive where these muscles will get. Uh, you know, I've seen them inside of boat engines, inside of the bilge pumps themselves, clogging the the mechanics right. up inside of those. So it's 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 not just you know for decontamination purposes it's for protecting your boat you know right. it, it, it behooves you to do that because it's some expensive repairs when they overheat an engine or some water pump or something in your in your motor right you know and i've always been in someone when we park our boat you know i always bring the bring the motor up so it's out of the water um and now i mean that's going to be you know you don't want your motor sitting in the water if you can help it you want to move it up and and that's something we're probably going to have to talk to people about and and I, I know even being down in Yankton, I see that change has been made, you know, in the marina there. If you've got a, a you know, an outboard motor, those guys are all raising their, their motors now, so they're not sitting in the water and collecting. When we first muscles. saw that, that happening at Lewis and Clark, we were just seeing you know, what percentage of boats had muscles on them in the marina there. And every boat that was in the water had, you know, at least one muscle. Most of them had hundreds of muscles. But the boats that were actually up on the lifts, you know, the only ones that had muscles on them were the ones that had their motors trimmed down like the skag was still in sure. the water. So, yeah, if you can get out of the, get something out of the water, obviously they're not going to attach to that. Right. Is there, will they attach to even like aluminum, like on a pontoon? Um, you know, obviously not right angles, but there's enough nook and crannies underneath and up in there. Is there anything you can treat it, treat something with to keep them off there? Treat a boat that wouldn't eat your boat? And <laughs> I've seen a few products that are still, you know, kind of in testing phases. One of them I've seen is... This company has infused wax with pharmaceutical grade capsaicin, so you're basically shooting them with pepper spray type stuff. Um, early stuff looks promising, but again, there's a lot of research that needs to go in to see how effective these things really are. Right. And there's once a water body has zebra mussels, there's really nothing, nothing you can do, um, is there? No, uh, there's in uh, in history there's been two cases um, isolated small quarries where there's no water coming in coming out um, they can have an appropriate contact time to where uh, basically they nuke the water with potash and kill everything and that has that has worked in two instances uh, one in Pennsylvania one in Virginia um, everywhere else you know there's we're talking something the size of Lake Sharp or any of the Missouri right. reservoirs, how are you going to, and it's moving water. Right. Um, you know, each muscle can produce up to a million per year. They live three to nine years. You do the math. I mean, if, if you don't have an effective treatment, if you don't kill every last one, they're just going to come back. Right. So the, what it would cost plus the difficulty of accomplishing anything, it's just not really feasible. Right. So, so what's the big takeaway for, for our boaters and our, our, our anglers and, and people who are even worried about it. What's what's the big takeaway? Well, um, we uh, 
you know, ask ask everyone to to clean, drain, and, and dispose every single time that they leave the water. Um, you know, one of the big risks uh, of zero mussels and sharp is that we get so many boaters from all over the state. Um, right. You know, with Lewis and Clark, the majority of the boaters are in that southeast region, but um, these uh, middle Missouri and upper Missouri reservoirs, we get boaters from all all different corners of the state, and uh, you know, if they if they follow um you know those practices of of draining their um boat every time cleaning all mud and vegetation away from it um they'll really minimize the risk the one of the other things they can do is before they go back home um let their boat dry for like a week um in a cool damp environment these mussels can survive out of water for like up to a week so um it's it's risky to to be going say from lake sharp back to your home water the next day and boating so um you know take those steps to clean and and dry your boat out dispose of any unwanted bait um so you're not transporting water that way and then if you can let your boat dry for like a week before you take it out on your home water so what uh what kind of future plans or or ideas studies or whatever do you have to on board to like continuing monitoring are you going to ramp up the monitoring are you going to be diving more are you going to be putting out more of these plates are you going to you know trying to follow that path and obviously you know um lake oahe probably you guys will be looking at that this fall and looking at that but just talk about kind of where we're going from here i know you're going to go put out signs you know new signs saying in infested waters uh grinder but just talk about where we're going from here just in the next month even Sure. So um, kind of the, the immediate thing that we need to know is where exactly are they? Um, how, you know, are they in Francis case already? We, they're likely going to be there sooner than later, probably already there, but can we confirm that they're already there? Um, and, Sh- and Sharp, are they just down the lower end? Are they all throughout the lake? Um, when we know that, you know, if they are all throughout the lake, then we know there's a lot of day boaters that use Sharp and Oahe in the same day. So um, kind of trying to quantify that first, um, we're going to step up all of our education outreach, make sure anyone using the lake knows. Um, you talked about the signs that uh, we've been putting those out the last couple days. Um, going to ramp up some of our um, our marketing efforts and, and, and stuff like that and just try to get the message out. But uh, as soon as as soon as we kind of answer those immediate questions, then uh, Oahe's the next step. So um, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be ramping up our efforts up there too. Sure. Uh, also, uh, you know, I think one of the big take homes is you got to have your plugs pulled and they got to stay out, otherwise you're going to get a ticket. Uh, and and everybody gets mad at that ticket, but that's the reason why we have them. Um, also, uh, talk a little about if somebody wants to find more information yeah we've got a pretty awesome resource uh, that we've worked on here through the department's website and a lot of companion stuff that goes with that it's sdleasewanted.com everything we do with AIS is branded with that lots of cool stuff on there maps photos videos suggestions how to clean your boat where to go to wash off your boat Um, definitely a cool place to check out for more info we just put a really that really cool visual of that European deer mount. That was impressive. That's scary. Um, but a deer put a European deer mount down in, in Lewis and Clark, and a year later it it looks like a stuffed animal pretty much. It's, I think it's impressive. It's crazy. So, but thanks for your time, you guys. I appreciate it. Uh, go get washed off and make sure your wet <laughs> your wetsuits are dried off. And and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you down the line. Thanks a lot, boys. Thanks, Chris. Just pass by without seeing how to me. All right, welcome back to the South Dakota Podcast and Blast. Even though you didn't go anywhere, I did. I'm sitting in the office of maybe my second favorite Nebraska corn husker in the entire world, Mr. Chad Switzer. I don't know who my first would be. I would initially say my sister-in-law, but I think she was actually born in Minnesota. So I was going to ask you who your first was. Yeah, it probably have to be my sister-in-law, Dana. 
But uh, Chad's the man behind all our game management plans and all the sciencey stuff that we do with game management and big game management. And uh, we're going to talk to Chad. He's I think you're my first repeat guest. Wow. Yeah, because we talked to you about some CWD stuff uh, a while back. And now we're going to talk about CWD again. Chad, um, a few weeks ago at our last GFP commission meeting, uh, the commission uh, forwarded a proposal <coughs> on CWD and helping slow the spread and protect our herd. Can you tell me, essentially in, in non-sciencey terms, what this proposal would mean to South Dakota deer hunters and elk hunters for that matter? Yeah, sure. So I guess probably the, the one thing to talk about prior to that would be the adoption of our CWD action plan that the commission took formal action on, which kind of led to the uh, proposed rules uh, out there. So <clears throat> following some of the, the guidance within that plan, Chris, uh, the commission did did uh, move forward. Uh, what they had in front of them, I guess, was a couple different alternatives. Uh, one that was, was pretty black and white as to what would or would not be allowed and then the other one had some exceptions with that and uh <clears throat> it was a department recommendation and and the commission did move forward with i guess you would call it the most restrictive option there on the action sheet they had in front of them so what it boils down to chris is uh it's kind of has three prongs with it i guess mm -hmm. one in regards to interstate transportation which would be movements of deer or elk from one state to the next <clears throat> the movement of carcasses within our state from our known endemic areas where cwd has been confirmed in the southwestern portion of our state and then some disposal requirements for hunters themselves uh taxidermists and game processors so okay so let's walk that forward. Now keep in mind, this is just a proposal. So anybody listening to this, uh, if you wanna go on our site, uh, gfp.sd.gov and click on commission, you can find this proposal. And uh, you can also find a link to comment on it. And we're looking for comments, uh, comments, public, public testimony, public comments goes a long way, especially on something like this. But uh, let's go through that proposal just um, step by step. So let's first go with like uh, the interstate stuff that you were talking about. Yeah, so looking at interstate, Chris, uh, what they're looking at is say I'm a, I'm a hunter from pure South Dakota and I go on a mule deer hunt in Wyoming and I harvest a, a mule deer buck. <clears throat> the only portion of that carcass I could bring back would be uh, quarters or completely deboned meat. Uh, I could bring back in a clean skull cap with the antlers on it, you know, just a V cut. I cannot right. bring in a whole head, uh, anything like that. So, <clears throat> I guess just to back up a little bit, the, you know, the justification behind these rule proposals uh, is to try to reduce the artificial spread of CWD. Sure. So it's that that prion uh, that that causes that disease in this, you know, the the brain and central nervous system. So it can be transmitted from animal to animal or from animal to the environment. Uh, that prion can live within the soil. It's been known to be uh, uh, taken up by plants, uh, certain plants. We know that deer and elk are grazers, so it's just a, a preventative measure to try to, sure. try to reduce the spread of this. I mean, we want to try to keep it confined to where it is as long as we can. Uh, it's likely going to spread, and we likely have CWD in other parts of the state that we, we currently think we don't have. We're gonna find out more with some increased surveillance. So that would be the, the interstate part. Now, say if you're a hunter from Wisconsin, you drive through South Dakota, you harvest a mule deer in Wyoming, Montana, you could bring that whole carcass back through South Dakota uh, as long as you're just traveling through. Now, sure. there are gonna be other states, and unfortunately, states have differing rules as right. to what those transportation rules are. So what uh, South Dakota has, uh, Minnesota, Wyoming might be totally different. So hunters traveling to other states or non-resident hunters coming to South Dakota uh, need to be mindful and, and check those regulations as they move across the landscape sure. hunting deer and elk. Uh, so what about, uh, I'm 
there again, <clears throat> live in Pierce, South Dakota. I've got a Black Hills deer tag. I shoot a beautiful buck um, north of Hill City. And can I bring that to Pierce? The only portions uh, with the rules that are currently proposed, the only thing you could bring back with you would be uh, quarters from that animal, uh, back straps, tenderloins, things like that, mm-hmm. uh, or debone meat or that clean skull cap with the antlers attached. So uh, essentially, it's pretty black and white. Not, none of those parts can, can come out. That whole carcass cannot come out. Uh, things of that nature so it's going to be a a change of norm if this moves forward for our hunters and and some of our taxidermists and and processors i mean this would be it's a big change uh, it's a it's a huge change and and we want to ensure that our hunters and and those businesses and other stakeholders that are interested are are aware of this and can provide their feedback and comment on this okay when it comes to disposal so anything that would ultimately end up say you're a processor and someone brings you a quartered animal or you take your your quartered animal home and you you do your own processing uh any unused carcass parts need to ultimately end up in a permitted landfill in the state so that would be either you as a hunter or that processor uh, taking those unused carcass parts to a a landfill or checking with your waste management provider your garbage hauler see if they're acceptable of parts being thrown sure. in your dumpster and, and taken to the landfill so sure and that's a big change too and, and and you know i'm just sitting here talking to you and, and i've been in on a lot of this stuff and not nearly as much as you have but you know i'm, I'm just thinking you know it's it's a lot like uh you know the zebra muscle ais rules you know these rules aren't just to be you know, to be for us to be the bad guys for game fishing parts to be the bad guys. I mean, you could literally, if and it's not like when we've talked about this before. If a deer has, I almost said AIS because that's what more of my brain was. But if a deer has CWD and you shoot that deer and you have no idea because there's a lot of times you wouldn't know. It's not like they're sickly or you know overly sickly. You shoot that deer. You take it home to Cresbard, South Dakota. You were in the hills and you <coughs> shot a deer and you took it to Cresbard, South Dakota, and you cleaned it and you threw the threw the carcass in your pit or whatever. And and I got some plants picked up that prion and and some deer came by and ate it. Now we've got see. There's a good chance we've got CWD in Cresbard, South Dakota, or wherever else we're talking about. Is that Fault County, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah I've some hunted ruddy ducks with my friend Casey Wisemail yeah. and Chris Bart. I don't know why that stuck in my head, but but so yeah, I mean that's that's the real just behind this whole thing, right? I mean Exactly. Yeah, I mean we know that there's you know, this is gonna naturally spread. I mean there's uh avian uh predators or turkey vultures that feed on right, obviously carcasses sure. that, that could have C W D or or coyotes uh uh, carrying carcasses across the landscape, but anything we can do to minimize the chance of it being artificially transmitted or translocated across our state, that's where we want to try to be as proactive as we can. Right. Okay. Okay. And um, give me, you use the word endemic. Um, what's what's that in, in my English? <laughs> yeah, so in your English and mine, uh, in our, our known endemic areas would be those, either those counties or hunting units where we have detected chronic wasting disease in either deer or elk. So right now it's confined, confined to, you know, the Fall River, Custer, Pennington, Lawrence County uh, portion of our state. Uh, you look at other adjacent states like Nebraska, North Dakota, where they've documented it, we likely have CWD outside of our known sure. endemic area. Uh, we're going to be reaching out to our hunters with uh, uh, hunters that have a firearm license for some of these units uh, adjacent to where we know we have it or adjacent to where our adjacent states have it. And we're going to be seeking their, their help in, in surveillance efforts. And we want to sample as many deer and elk as we can to try to determine, you know, with some science around it some statistical power whether we're pretty confident we have it or not within those areas and uh and if we do we can you know any new rules that the commission would put on those rules would apply to those new areas and i guess just for our listeners 
the commission proposal, anything that would move forward from this, those new rules would not come into play until the 2020 hunting seasons. Uh, so we'd be promoting best management practices and other preventative measures with our hunters for this year and until those rules come into play. So uh, we felt it was not the right business thing to do to impose new rules on our hunters when at the time of applying for that respective license those rules weren't in place and right. we want to make it make it right so right and give almost everybody kind of a practice season to see how exactly. it works and um, you know the struggles and um but so surveillance uh we're going to be ramping up surveillance and we're going to be using citizen hunters for that primarily and Yep, uh, we're going to be yeah reaching out and contacting all of those firearm license holders. Uh, we've been having uh, uh, communication and, and several meetings with the uh, Department of Transportation to try to utilize road kills during certain times of the year where sure. we can get a viable sample from an already deceased uh, critter. Uh, we're going to be trying to work with as many taxidermists as we can across the state. Uh, they get their hands on a lot of older age male deer. Uh, those older age male deer have a higher likelihood of, of carrying CWD, so they carry a huge weight when it comes to that equation in, that you would find within our action plan when it comes to surveillance and, uh, and maybe even trying to reach out and work with some processors. Processors get their hands on a lot of, yeah. a lot of individuals, and, and uh, yeah. Hmm. So CWD always fatal for the most part? Deer get CWD, they're done. I mean, yeah, I guess they're all going to die. Yeah, they're all going to die. But uh, you, if you have CWD, you are your your lifespan is going to be significantly shortened. Sure. Uh, you know, you get back, Chris. I think you mentioned uh, hunters. <clears throat> there's a lot of hunters that 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 animal physically. Uh, some may show some clinical signs in the field uh, while you're hunting that animal, and others might look totally healthy yet still be in the early stage or mid stage of of that progression of that disease so uh, just because your animal looks healthy does not mean it does not have cwd sure that's that's kind of a tough deal i mean you know i'm sure you know most deer hunters or big game hunters are like me you want to do what you can and and be safe um are, are we recommending you know if you have any desire to test your critter to bring it in and we'll have it tested or how are we working that yeah, so if <clears throat> listeners go to our website, uh, just uh, you can find CWD on there. Pretty, pretty simple. Uh, there's some stuff in there on surveillance on how, uh, if you're a hunter, you're Chris Hole, you want to have your deer tested that you may have even harvested in Hughes County. Uh, we will work with you. There's a submission form there. We'll help you get the samples pulled, get those submitted to the diagnostics lab over at SDSU, and uh, yeah. So, and, and I guess from the standpoint of, of public health, you know. CWD has not ever been confirmed to, to jump the species barrier from uh, cervids such as deer and elk to, to humans, even though there are uh, uh, this TSE prion disease in humans. This has not been confirmed to jump sure. deer or elk to, to humans. So, But we, we still urge hunters to you know, use good precautionary measures, and, and if something doesn't look healthy, uh, you know, probably might be of your best interest not to consume that animal or if your deer or elk does come back and test positive you know it's our recommendation probably not to eat that animal but i guess that would be up to the up to the hunter sure and, and you know that it seems like you know you always hear about ehd and blue tongue and and that kind of thing really wiping out herds you know locally um you know take you know hutchinson county and some of those counties down in the southeast where i mean those herds some of those herds really got decimated and, and that's the more you know i think when I'm, I'm at sports shows and i'm talking to or the state fair and i'm talking to hunters and they're like man that you know that ehd out west you know what are you doing with that and there's a little bit of confusion there but I think the EHD has probably been more on the front burner because it is so, like, it has hit home very locally in some places. Right. Where CWD, you know, out west, I know they've, they've there's been concern in a lot of states and even some places where that CWD is shown, you know, even without any hunting 
cull, you know, that right. it's really affected those populations. And I mean, that's really the, the bottom line, right? I yeah, mean, no, you're exactly right. So we, we've known we've had CWD in our wild deer and elk for nearly 20 years now. <clears throat> Can we document a, a population effect or decline because of CWD? We really haven't done the research or science behind that to try to document that. But like you mentioned, some of these other Western states that have dealt with this a little longer than we have and have invested a lot of time and money into into research, uh, putting in those survival rates and, and the mortality from CWD and, and some other population modeling right. uh, doesn't look real promising, uh, projecting out 25, 50 years from now. So we need to think long-term. It's not right. short-term. Uh, you're right, EHD, blue tongue, those hemorrhagic diseases, that's a virus, total different disease. Uh, you're right, that can have a huge impact locally, and, and it's very visible, right? So yeah. uh, you're a pheasant hunter uh, out there hunting early on. You, you've been in those wetlands where you walk in and right. it just stinks of death, and then you find dead deer all over. Right. We get reports of landowners during harvest time where they, they start finding, you know, sitting in their combine, dead deer everywhere. Uh, CWD is a little different deal. It has a very long incubation period. You know, it could be six months out to three years versus uh, deer that gets EHD can be dead in, when it gets that virus, they could be dead in two or three days. Right. And, and they can die in large amounts very quickly. So just much more visible sure. than, than CWD. So. Sure. So uh, I, guess, I guess the big take-home right now in Switz <clears throat> is, is this proposal is exactly just that. It's a proposal, and it's up for public comment, public input, uh, we're going to take that up in is it September? There is no or there is no August meeting, correct? Right, September meeting in Spearfish. In Spearfish, uh, um, so folks want to go to that Spearfish meeting. I believe it is fifth and sixth. Yep. I think Spearfish. I think it's the Holiday Inn. Um, but either either way, you can go to our website if you don't want to. You know, if you can't make it to Spearfish uh, in person, I, I will tell you I've I've missed two commission meetings in thirteen years. And uh, commissions take uh, public input pretty seriously. And, and we're looking for comments on this proposal. Uh, go to our website, gfp.sd.gov. Up on the top uh, banner, you hit click commission. It'll take you down there, current <coughs> proposals. You can go there, you'll find a, find a link to um, make those proposals online. You can send it to, what are we, 523 East Capitol and Pier 57501 uh, if you want to do snail mail. but but. You know, take the time, take a look at that, and comment on it. Basically, it's if you're bringing a deer, elk, moose, or reindeer, even if you're bringing it through the state, as long as you're not dropping it off anywhere, you can bring the whole, whole carcass, mm -hmm. right? Correct. If you're a hunter in the endemic area, which is the Black Hills, you're gonna have to bone that deer out, or at least quarter it out, because we're talking spinal cord and brain is where this stuff is. Yeah. Lives, right? right. We want to keep those high-risk carcass portions, parts, right. where they are and not get those outside. Yeah. Right. So you'd have to leave that there. I mean, even if it entails boning it out in the field or quartering it out in the field, can't bring the whole, whole skull back. It'd just be the skull cap, cleaned out of brains. So if you're for a South Dakota hunter from East River or outside the hills, you'd have to leave all that stuff home. And uh, you got to, if you're bringing, bringing the carcasses any car any carcasses anywhere it could no longer be just thrown in a pit or thrown in a tree belt or anything right they'd have to be yeah. go to a go to an approved uh dump site yeah. i guess if you will you know it's going to be some extra work and extra effort on our hunters i mean i i used to drag deer out Oof. i had a lot, of, a lot of public land but right. uh to quarter an animal out once you you know there's youtube videos and we're going to be doing some of that promotional right. work and provide that information but it's it's pretty simple to quarter an animal out or to even bone an animal out and right. I, I know it may not be the preferred method by a lot of hunters but but it is doable it, it is an alternative option uh that that can be done and uh yeah right. i mean we're we're trying to you know sitting here today it's almost august one and be honest to our listeners right now we don't have a lot of public comment right now and we want to hear from you folks uh, from our hunters our taxidermists processors whomever it might be, whether you reside in the Black Hills or in our endemic area or live in Brookings County. Um, we have people that travel from all over the state uh, and the country to hunt within our CWD known area. And, and uh, we want you folks to be aware of that and we want to hear your feedback. So Right, it's, it's a big issue, not just here, but across the West. And, and uh, 
you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what people say, you know, because we do know it's a it's a big deal and it's something that's facing our deer herd's future in 10, 20, 30 years. Yep. So. And if they have questions, you know, if you're listening, you have questions on CWD, uh, open up our CWD action plan. It's, it's on our website. Uh, it may not be for everybody to read, but if you just want to learn more or learn more about some of the things that we're going to be suggesting to hunters to do, uh, some of the long-term concerns of the disease and its effect on potential effect on, on populations and whatnot, uh, open that thing up and, and, and read some segments of it. And I, I think it'll provide our, read, our, our listeners a better understanding of what we're dealing with and why we're doing what we're doing. So Right. And I, I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding that you've done the road shows and that you're probably one of the most, um, I mean, not that all, all our staff isn't, but I, I know you take a lot of phone calls from just people off the street mm-hmm. to want to know about mountain lion management plans or pheasant management plans or the CWD management plan. I mean, if, if somebody really needs something cleared out after looking at some of that stuff, I mean. Yeah, give us an email, call. That's that's why we're here. So. Right. Cool. Well, uh, to my favorite sand lizard, I thank you for your time. Well, I know you don't like that term. I don't even know where that term came from. That's what, that's what we used to call Nebraska people down at the University of South Dakota. Okay. Thanks for your time, Chad Switzer. I appreciate it. Yep. And uh, that's it for today. Okay. Thanks, Chris.